Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Find a seat. We're going to jump in uh, to God's Word, and um, we are in our series uh, called In the Lord's Sight. We've been in that series uh, for a few weeks. It'll pretty much be all summer that we'll be going through the books of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles. We're kind of coming to the end of 1 Kings, so we'll finish up 1 Kings here in the next couple of weeks. And then uh, we'll be finishing up 2 Kings and the rest of Chronicles uh, through the rest of the summer. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. It's in the Old Testament uh, in those passages. And the reason we named the series, for those of you who are new, and just as a reminder to those who have been here, in the Lord's sight is because it's one of two phrases, um, depending on your version. It could say in the Lord's eyes, but in the Lord's sight or in the Lord's eyes is one of two phrases that are repeated all the way through the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles. The other phrase is the high places, and we struggled with which we were going to name it, and we kind of came up with this. And the reason it's in the Lord's sight is because as you read through these books, 1 and 2 Kings, which is the history of the kings period, and 2 Chronicles, which is part of the history of the kings of Israel, as you read through those, you find the Lord saying this king or this person did what was right in the Lord's sight or in the Lord's eyes. This person did not do what was right in the Lord's eyes or in the Lord's sight, which means God is watching. He's looking. He's looking for those who are willing to come to him and say, I can't do what's right, Lord. I need your help. And to surrender to him. And the people that did that and cried out to God and the kings that did that The Lord blessed, the Lord taught them, they were humble, they allowed others to teach them, and they came under the authority of God so that people could righteously come under their authority as a king. And there weren't very many of them. There was actually zero kings that said, that God said did right in his sight in the northern kingdom, which was the majority of the empire, 10 tribes, and not once. Not once did they have a leader who did what was right in the Lord's sight. In the southern kingdom, only a handful of kings, just a few, that God said, this king did what was right in the Lord's sight, and it was normally after things got so terrible, and God said, I'm going to destroy you, that the next king came along and was like, we need to repent. He personally repented, and then he led the people, because of his authority, he led them righteously to repent or else. And you have to remember, right now it's a divided kingdom. God wanted to, he didn't want them to ever have a king. He didn't want them to ever build a temple. They decided they wanted a king and they built a temple and now they're responsible for it. God does the same thing with us. He says everything's permissible for us in Christ Jesus, but not everything's beneficial. And the Israelites are finding very quickly that having a king isn't benefiting them like they thought it would. You ever been there? You ever got something and thought, oh, this is going to fix the problem, this is going to take care of it, and it just created more problems? And you didn't see it coming maybe for 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road? It's like, oh, ah, right? It's the same thing. And you have to remember at this time, we're going to look at a map in a little bit, but you have to remember there was a border, the Mediterranean was on one side, the Jordan River on the other, and there was a border, like our southern border, between the two. And the kings don't want people crossing borders. The southern kingdom was a little bit less judgmental in people crossing into the northern border. But the northern king, it was punishable by death if you tried to cross over. 
They actually had troops stationed, and you could not leave the unrighteousness and the wickedness of the northern kingdom to go to the southern kingdom. You could not go to Jerusalem and obey God and worship as God told you, because remember, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, Jeroboam created a new system of worship. He created two bulls, right? Two calves, golden calves. He put them in Bethel, okay, and Dan, and he put those calves there for their worship. By the way, we'll see again on the map, Bethel is only 10 miles from Jerusalem right on the border. He literally put the capital, so you had to go through Bethel road-wise, because remember, there weren't a lot of roads back then. It's not like now. Like, there weren't many roads, and the road ran through Bethel to Jerusalem. So you couldn't get to Jerusalem unless you went like some dangerous route without going through Bethel. And the king wasn't letting anybody go to Jerusalem because he didn't want to lose his power. We are talking about a period in time where families are against families, they're killing each other, it's a disaster. And there's a king that repents, and there's one that's not. There's actually two kings that do what's right in this, during this time period we're looking at, and there's not. And here's the key that we're going to look at this morning in this series. Not just for us, like, do, do, am I concerned about who I am in the Lord's sight, or am I concerned about who I am in everyone else's view? Because the northern king... Didn't want anybody to go south because he didn't want them to see him as he truly was. And he didn't want the kingdom. He didn't want them to find out that he had corrupted the word of God. They weren't even reading the word of God, right? So I don't want you to go south. I don't want you to see that. And so he kept them from seeing who God was. What we get to when we get into this section, which is in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19 and 2 Chronicles 17, and this is the title this morning, is Provoking. You ever provoked anyone? If you have siblings, I know you have. Because siblings do this on purpose. It's a part of like being a sibling. Like it's actually the point. Like I've been, I've been sent here by God to test you and provoke you. Thank you. I'm your older sister or brother or I'm the younger brother or sister. Like provoking is what we do. And the Bible talks about provoking in two different ways, and we'll look at it. The Bible says you can provoke God to wrath, and you can provoke him to joy. You can provoke him, and it's the same with us. We can provoke people to wrath, or we can provoke people to joy. We can provoke people away from God, and we can provoke people towards God. But your life is constantly provoking people whether you want it to or not. You are provoking people whether you like it. Just, listen, if you make the decision to not do anything and you live in a household with a bunch of people, that's provoking. Because the other people are doing stuff and they're like, why aren't you doing anything? We're like, well, I'm not doing anything. Exactly. And you're provoking me to wrath because you're not doing anything. How can I provoke you when I'm not doing anything? Because you're supposed to be doing something. Right? Or if you do everything and you're Messing with everybody's stuff, and you're cleaning up their stuff, and taking care of all kinds of stuff. Like, and everybody's like, leave my stuff alone. Quit putting my stuff away. You're trying to do the right thing, but you're provoking everyone in your house to wrath. And you're like, can I get this right? I don't know how to provoke properly. The Bible says to fathers, do not exacerbate or provoke your children to wrath. 
He recognizes that it's easy for us to want our way and it's easy for us to do things that we think are right and we think it's the right thing to say and all those things, but deep down inside there are these false motives because we want to be seen in people's sight in a certain way and we want to be seen by God in a certain way and we want a certain thing from our fleshly desires and what ends up happening is we start provoking God and we start provoking others against us without even knowing it. And sometimes you have to provoke people. You have to provoke them so that they can see that they need God. You can't just sit back and do nothing. We are a provoking people in the world. God's people, Israel, were supposed to be a provoking people. They were supposed to go out to the world, represent God so clearly to the people around them that it provoked the people around them to want to kill them. By the way, why was Jesus slaughtered and killed? Because he provoked everyone to righteousness in God, and they hated it, and they killed it. And so as we dive into this passage, just some quick things to keep in mind. There's the southern kingdom, that's Judah, and then some of the Benjamin tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. The place of worship, Jerusalem, the temple, and the ark. And the ark represents the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, and the word of God, because the tablets of the Ten Commandments were inside the ark. So it represents the spirit and word of God. That's important to remember this morning. The king in this period that we're looking at is King Asa, a righteous king. He did not do as his grandfather and father did. He said, I am not going to act that way. I'm going after the heart of God. I want what God says in his sight is right. And Asa lived a righteous life, but he didn't tear down the high places that were in the rural areas. And it cost him. But then his son Jehoshaphat came along. Jehoshaphat, we'll see in a moment, becomes king during this time period. And Jehoshaphat also does what's right in God's eyes. And he goes after the high places. So finally, some righteous kings, right, out of all these kings. In the northern kingdom, there are the ten other tribes. Their place of worship they've created is Bethel and Dan. They have two temples with two golden calves. They went back to worshiping golden cows. Because, you know, that's better than a God we can't see. A God, we need something we can touch, tangible, practical. This Yahweh God, he's not very practical. We can't see him, touch him. We can't make him into something that we want him to be. And during this time period, you have Ahab and Jezebel that are kings. Jezebel herself rules like a king or a queen. So let's dive in. 1 Kings 15, it says, In the 20th year of Israel, King Jeroboam's son, or Asa, of King Jeroboam, Asa became king of Judah and reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. That is a long time. Long reign. Okay? Asa did what was right in the Lord's eyes or sight as his ancestor David had done. But in his old age, he developed a disease in his feet. Then Asa rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of his ancestor David. His son Jehoshaphat became king of his place. Does that not crack you as funny when you read that? Come on. Like, I love how God just throws in these details of like the reality of sight. Yep, Asa had a foot disease. Just thought, thought, thought you'd like to know. Well, Why? Because we all get diseases. And I thought you'd like to know that even though you're righteous, you do things right, you live a righteous life, you live a righteous kingdom, it's, it's great. But you still might develop a foot disease and not be able to walk around. It's just kind of how life goes. I love that God does that, that he just kind of throws that in there and says, look, I see everything in your life, even the little foot disease nobody knows you have. You got some bad, like, 
funky stuff going on. I know. I see it. It's okay. I love you. I loved Asa. He had bad foot disease. Right? Probably tried to cover it up for a long time and it just kept getting worse and worse. And everybody's like, dude, you got to do something. Oh, that's bad. I love that God puts this in here because it shows that we have a God that isn't just off somewhere righteously ruling and here I am. He's like, he's practically looking at the reality of our world and calling things what they are and looking at our life and going, yep, you got a foot disease. Yep, you got a problem. I get it. Not taking it away. You're going to die with your foot disease. Love you. That's so comforting. (laughs) Ah. Because all the other gods, including the Baal gods, tell me if I just make enough sacrifices and I just slaughter enough children and slaughter enough animals and I just do all the right things, then I'll get my feet healed. Our God says, maybe, probably not, because I'm using it to teach you. I'm using it to humble you. That's our God. You don't get to manipulate me. This is what I've given you in your life. And you can ask to be healed from it. Paul asked in the New Testament, he asked three times for God to take something away from him. And what was God's response to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. I got this. Okay, but could you like speed up that grace now? Like I like some grace now on my feet. I like some grace now with my problem. I'm giving you all the grace you need to get through it. We're good. No, I don't want, I don't want grace. I, I just, I don't, I just, I want it done. I don't want to struggle. Not an option. I love that about our God, that he's just honest. He doesn't try to woo us with, if you just come to know me, I'll fix everything for you. You just come on. And then you come in and he's like, oh, yeah, you need to give me more. You give me more. Give me more stuff and then maybe I'll fix it. He's not like, you know, carrot stick with us. That is not God. God's like, you either have my grace and you know me or you don't. Do you know me? And if you do, don't expect everything to go your way. I have a plan you don't understand that I'm unfolding that's been taking thousands of years and you're just a small, tiny part in it. And your foot disease might be mentioned thousands of years later to a bunch of people to encourage them. (laughs) I love this about the Lord. And it provokes me to be encouraged when I've got problems. Right? You know, we undervalue faithfulness, and we overvalue talent. We undervalue faithfulness and overvalue talent. You have to remember that during Asa's reign, the northern kingdom had one king for 41, or the southern kingdom had one king, Asa, for 41 years. The northern kingdom had seven kings that were all more talented than the next guy and killed the next guy and all their families to prove how more talented they were. Asa was just faithful even though he had a foot disease. He's just faithful. Man, there's such a lesson in that for us. It should provoke us to say, this is our God. This is who he is. I don't have to be the most talented. I don't have to have this figured out. Matter of fact, if you think you're the most talented, you'll probably end up killing people. Climbing to get to the top to figure out you get to the top and you're on the wrong wall. And exactly what he lays out is that I value faithfulness. I value people who provoke people to faithfulness. And Asa went around. Remember what Asa did to grandma last week? Asa cut down grandma's Asherah pole. You try that at your grandma's house. You go to grandma's, you find something that she worships that isn't supposed to be right, and you walk in there straight up and be like, chop, 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 throw it on the fire, burn it, and go, there you go, grandma, just helping you out, not putting up with this. See how that goes. 
Because Asa was more concerned about being faithful and he was more concerned about other people's faithfulness to God than he was what was pragmatic, what was valuable, what would get him where he thought he needed to be. He just trusted the Lord. Now, why do I lay all that out? Because this is what's happening in the, that's the southern kingdom. This is what's happening. When everything is moving towards righteousness in the southern kingdom, look at what's happening in the northern kingdom. And see, this is how it always is. There's always the spiritual battle in us between the flesh and the spirit, between God and the things of this earth. This is a picture of that. And which are you going to provoke people towards? To just get along? Or are you going to fight? And are you going to fight righteously? You remember, they couldn't fight each other. We'll see this in a couple of weeks. But earlier, Asa was going to go fight. And God said, don't fight him. Back off. You're going to have to let me handle him. That doesn't mean you don't fight for righteousness in the relationships you can fight for righteousness. That's what Asa did. God just said, you're going to have to let them go. And it's going to be hard. And you've told them and I've told them. They know. It's not an issue of they don't know that they're being unrighteous. It's an issue they don't care. 1 Kings 8, 16, 29. Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Judah, kings Asa. So he reigned 41. So Asa's old and he has three years left. And this guy Ahab comes to rule after a succession of six very evil kings, Right? Asa had a succession of evil kings and said, no more, I want to be righteous. I'm tired of this. Ahab, King Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. More than all who were before him. How would you like for God to say that about you? You claim to be an Israelite. You claim to know, to, to know the God of Yahweh, but you've turned him into two cattle, two, two golden calves. You, and you double down on all the wickedness. Instead of seeking out God's word, you're just making it up like all those who made it up before you. You don't even care what the Bible says. You don't even care how God's laid things out. You're just making it up because it works and it feels good and it seems right. And you have no, you're being tossed around and you're tossing the people around because you're not giving them the word of God. We're going to find out later in our, in the story that the southern kingdom also loses the word of God for several kings and generations. And one day someone finds it, actually a female prophetess finds the word of God because the men were so weak and the prophets of God weren't even reading, the men prophets of God weren't even reading God's word. And she brings it to the king and the king goes, oh my gosh, and the greatest revival of the Old Testament breaks out. We're going to find that story coming up. It's amazing. But the northern kingdom has completely abandoned the word of God and Ahab keeps doubling down on not knowing God's word. It's whatever works. It's what's ever practical. You pick the parts that work. You change the parts around so they fit what you want and your desires and what you're trying to build. Did God really say that, Ahab? I don't know. It works. This is what we're doing. I got Bethel. People can't leave my kingdom. Seems to be working pretty well. Now watch this. He's not done. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, that's the one that divided the kingdom, and God said, if you follow me, I'll bless you. And Jeroboam's like, no thanks, I don't need your blessing. And he created all this mess. Son, he says, following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were a trivial matter. Like, nah, you know, Jeroboam, psh, 
I'm going I'm to do more evil than I, I can. I can do it right. Even though all these kings keep trying to do it right and improve on a broken system, I can really improve on the broken system. It says he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbal, son or king of the Sidonians. And then he proceeded to serve Baal. That's Baal is represented as a bull and sometimes as a dragon. It's interesting that many of the religions still in the eastern part of the world trace their religion and their ancestor worship back to cattle and dragons. It goes on, it says, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. So he built a temple. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. So you have Asa cutting down an Asherah, his grandma's Asherah pole and burning it publicly, and you have Ahab being like, oh, you burn grandma's Asherah pole? I'm going to make a new one for grandma, and she can move to the northern kingdom. She can come on to our church here in the north, because we're going to give her that Asherah pole. We're going to give grandma what she wants. And it goes on, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He did more to look at God and say, forget you. I don't care what you say. I don't care about your people. I'm going to make myself important and I'm going to make them do what they need to do under me. He just kept provoking God. It's like poking the bear. It's going to bite you. No. Quit poking the bear. God's way bigger than a bear. And it says he married Jezebel. This is huge. Jezebel, you have to remember, Jezebel was of the original, like the Sidonians were a part of the Canaanite people that God's people were supposed to destroy. We're going to look at that in a second. But also you have to remember There's something that's happening in culture that I need to address going into this passage. And it's not popular to address. I'm going to say it. People aren't going to like it. Most of what's happening in our current culture is what's happening here. And what I mean is this. All the kings before Ahab and all the kings even in the southern kingdom all had multiple wives and they weren't supposed to. Ahab... He only had one one wife his entire life. It was Jezebel. Never had a concubine or another woman in his life. And we would celebrate that over the other kings. We would look at that and say, he's got to be right. He's married to one woman. He stayed. They get along. Jezebel and Ahab always agreed. They always agreed because Jezebel always got her way. You're going to find that as we read through the passage. They they had full agree. They had a great marriage. The two of them were the first power couple. And today, most churches are moving towards husband and wife power couples in almost every church you find. And it is not a reflection of how biblical leadership works. It's a reflection of Ahab and Jezebel. Do I mean that in every single case those people are Ahab and Jezebel and they're that wicked? I didn't say that. I say it's a picture of this. It's a picture of saying, look, we're married, we're doing well, we're doing all the right things, so leave us alone. Let us do what we're supposed to do. You can't challenge us. We're equals, we're co-equals together. That's not what God lays out in Scripture. It's just not. And this is the only kingship that we know of when we look, 
where it talks about the king and his wife being equals, and it talks about them having unity together and loving and caring for one another above everyone else. That's another problem. The other problem is we exalt marriage and relationships above God's people all the time, and we celebrate it. We need to be asking each other to both lay down our lives for the church because that's what Jesus did. He came as the bridegroom and he looked at us, the bride, and he said, we together are going to lay down our lives. I'm going to pick up a cross. You're going to pick up a cross. And together we are going to surrender our lives to the people of God. But they stink. They're horrible. They do mean things to you. I know. I was crucified. Came back from the dead. You'll come back from the dead. Let's do this. Ahab and Jezebel, not that. Be very careful what we're building because it looks like they're doing great. He reigned 22 years. That's one of the longest kingships of any of the northern kings. So you think, oh, God's blessing him. He reigns 22 years. He must, they have a great marriage. They get along. Oh, wow. He does build temples. He's got wealth. And he is more wicked and provoked God more than any other king before him. Be careful, be careful how you discern. Because it is very easy to measure the wrong things and end up like Ahab and Jezebel, thinking that you're good, not listening to the people around you. Here's what Hebrews says to the church today about provoking. Hebrews 10.23, remember, Hebrews is written to Israelite Christians. (laughs) The same people God is writing to in 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Israelite Yahweh worshipers. That's that's the same here. He says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another, ready for this, in order to promote King James and some other versions say to provoke. Some versions say to spur on. You know what a spur is? A spur is what you use on a horse when they don't listen to the bridle. When you are on a horse, you should be able to steal that. You can steer a horse. You can lead a horse. If you put your hand forward, a good horse who trusts its rider, you don't have to use the bridle. You don't have to use the bit. You just lean your hand forward and they know we're going. Let's go. I'm ready. You pull it back. You don't have to pull hard. You just pull back and they respond. Because that bridle, that that bit in their mouth hurts. And a good rider doesn't want to use the bit heavily because he knows it'll cause calluses and he won't be sensitive. But sometimes the horse is spooked. It doesn't want to go. It's unsure because horses can't see in front of them. So they have to trust their rider. They have vision here. They don't have vision behind them. They don't have vision in front of them. So they have to trust the person driving them. Does that sound familiar? But every once in a while... When the horse doesn't want to go, you squeeze with your legs to try to get it to go. And if it still doesn't want to go, you put a spur in its ribs. You know what the horse does as soon as you hit it with a spur? Woo! Gone. That was not pleasant. Okay, I'll do what you say. Let's go. That's what the word means. It's to provoke one another. Dink! Ow! (laughs) Good. I'm glad we provoked one another to good works. It doesn't mean you just keep digging till they bleed. It doesn't, that's not the point. The point is, there are times when you don't listen when it's easy. You don't respond to the squeeze, you need a little bit more provoking because it's hard to encourage one another to do good works, especially 
when you have grace and you don't have to do good works to get to heaven. So why do them? I already got heaven. I already know Jesus. Why do good works? Because you want Jesus to lead your life. You want to be used by him. He's given you everything. Why wouldn't you want to just go? He goes on and he says, you really want to see if someone is provoked by good works? Not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews uses the most basic thing given to God's people since the Garden of Eden. (laughs) The day of rest. The day of worship. He's like, you want to know if you're working for you or you're working for God? Do you prioritize God's people? Do you prioritize being with God's people? Do you prioritize gathering together to talk about God and listen when we talk about God and worship and sing and greet one another? And like, is that what you do? If that's your priority, good job. You don't have to get spurred too much. But if you can't do that, I guarantee you there's a lot of spurs coming in. There's a lot of provoking God's going to do. And every time you're provoking him by staying away, he's saying, what are you doing? Because what was the northern kingdom doing? The northern kingdom, the reason Ahab provoked more than any other is because Ahab set up a ruling boundary with army. He set up a temple in Bethel and said, you will not pass to worship God in Jerusalem. If you do, I'll kill you. He kept them from doing the simple gathering for worship the people of God were called to do that Jeroboam, right? Like God said, Jeroboam, I get it. You're going to separate politically. But if you'll still let the people just travel across the border five miles, a few miles to worship in Jerusalem and then go back, I will bless you. Jeroboam's like, nope, can't do that. Got to put another place right there because I can't let them go there. This is the same thing Paul's writing here. He's like, listen, there's simple faithfulness that just provokes God. God loves to see his children together worshiping righteously. Not a fake worship, not, but coming together by faith. When you don't feel like coming and you come, God in heaven is like, that's faith. Amen. Because <laughs> you don't want to be there. You're tired and you're here. And God's like, thank you. That's what I've been asking people to do for thousands of years, and they just can't seem to, like, do it. I missed, like, a handful of Sundays my whole life growing up, and I never understood the value of it. And I've told this story before, until I got COVID a couple of years ago, two years ago, this May. And I'll never forget sitting on my couch the third Sunday that I had COVID. I was weeping last week, if you saw me up here, uncontrollably. I was doing some ugly crying. But I was, I was up here... Because we're singing the song about breathing. You are the the breath in my lungs. And I'm sitting on my couch that third Sunday I missed from COVID. And it clicked for me. My family went to church and left me by myself. Praise the Lord. You'll be fine. If you die while we're gone, you'll be in heaven and we'll celebrate that. Goodbye. They went to worship. I stayed home. Still struggling to breathe. And as Jason's singing that song... I lose it because I recognize that for the first time in my life, the history of my life, since I was born, I had never missed three consecutive Sabbaths of worshiping with God's people. 
I just broke. And I was like, God, I miss this. I want to be with the people. I'm ready to go home if you want to take me, because then I get to be with you and all the saints. That's even better than you folks, sorry. Like, but, but it just hit me. And last Sunday, I was weeping because my dad can't breathe right now. That's what he's struggling with. He can't breathe. And he just wants to go home and be with Jesus, but he's willing to fight if God wants him to. And on Tuesday, when we went in for his procedure, he came through okay. He had a hematoma, and they almost died because of that. But that's a whole other story. I mean, that's, my dad suffered through all of that. He still can't breathe. And all the time, he's like cracking jokes with the nurses, calls everybody in for prayer. It's like, if you're going to work on me, you got, we got to pray. And so he calls everybody in for prayer. Like, I'm like, who, what is this? He's so not focused on himself. Matt, Brian, take care of your mom. Something happens to me. You're, take care of your mom. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He's on the cross. He looks at John. He goes, that's your mom now. Like, I'm gone. You, take care of her. Like, it's the heart of Jesus. This is what God's been asking his people to do. And it's why Ahab provoked God so much. He wouldn't let the people worship. He wouldn't let them just go to Jerusalem and obey traveling to Jerusalem and making the sacrifices that God asked them to make. And it just made God so mad. It broke his heart. Deuteronomy. We read about the fact that Ahab married Jezebel and then Jezebel built Asherah poles and, and she literally was the leader for Baal worship in the nation. She decided we are going to worship just like grandma in the southern kingdom and Asa was like, grandma, we're not doing that. In the northern kingdom, Ahab's like, honey, you can have whatever you want. Let's make everybody worship Baal. Let's double down. Let's, you, you just build what you want and do what you want. That's exactly what happened. And this is why it provoked God so badly. If you read Deuteronomy 7, remember, the book of Deuteronomy is written after the people have been delivered from slavery. They've been given the Ten Commandments, which is their guide. Now they're getting ready to go into the promised land, and God is giving them how to live in the promised land they don't have yet. He's giving them the outline. Like, when you get there, this is what you're going to have to do. You need to listen to me. You're not going to want to listen to me. But you need to listen to me. I'm preparing you ahead of time. This is what God always does. He always prepares us ahead of time so that we don't have an excuse. He just prepares us ahead of time. And then we fail, and he's like, would you like grace and forgiveness, or would you like to just be an idiot and live in your consequences? Like, this is how God works. So he's preparing. Moses is writing, like, three sermons, like, three sections in Deuteronomy. And he's laying out, hey, when you get into the promised land, and by the way, Moses is saying, I'm not going to get in because I made a mistake, and God told me that I'm not going to the promised land. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has to climb up, or beginning of Joshua, I can't remember which. He climbs up on the mountain, and God buries him. And Joshua is given the reins, and Joshua takes him into the promised land. A righteous man is giving people the word of God knowing that as he's writing these sermons, there's absolutely no benefit for what he is telling the people in these passages because he's dead. He's not going to be able to do any of it. He just wants to provoke them and get them ready for what they're getting ready to face because he knows he's going to be gone. Think about that for a minute. And God is telling Moses what to tell the people, and this is what God says. Deuteronomy 7, 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you. By the way, that's a symbol of God driving sin out of our life and driving the mess out of our life, driving the nations of the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, oh, the 
Perizzites, sorry, that's different than a parasite. The Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. He even, I love God's honesty. They're way more numerous and powerful than you. You ready to go? Oh, no. No, they're, they're way more numerous and powerful, but I'm going to do miracles. It's going to be awesome. Well, could you do them before we get there? Could you like just take care of it now like we walk in, it's all done? No, that's not how I, I don't work that way. He goes on and he says, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, that means you're going to have to fight. There's going to be a fight here. You must completely destroy them. That's the idea of you've got to deal with all the sin, all the mess in the land and in your life. And he says, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Jezebel. They will do it and you'll listen to them. Don't let it happen. Don't do it. Stand up against it. Completely, listen, these people had an option. They could either surrender to the God of Yahweh. By the way, there were numerous people who did as they went into the promised land. The first one that surrendered, do you know what her name was? The first person to surrender to Yahweh being God in the first battle when they went into the promised land. What was her name? Anybody? Rahab. A prostitute's the first person to surrender. Wow, this is going well. We're really getting some popular people here to come over to God's side. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. She hides the spies. She says, my God will be your God. I'll surrender. And Rahab is mentioned in the lineage of Jesus because she, she says, I don't want to be Canaanite, Ger Amorite. I'm done with that. I'm now Israelite. See, that's the difference. When you carry a label that you declare above God and his identity, you're in trouble. Drop the labels. Drop them. God is God. His people are his people. And when you hang on to a label and some identity that you have and you cling to that, don't be surprised when God shatters that identity. When he comes in and makes war against that identity in your life because he desires that your identity be found completely in him. That's the picture of why he says you can't play around with this. Don't play around with you can be Christian in this. You can be God in this. You can be Israel. Don't play with that stuff. Don't do it. Be who God says you are. You are a new creation in Christ. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's possession, Peter says. Don't play around with it anymore. Cut down grandma's Asherah pole. Done. Not doing it. Love you, grandma. I'll bring you some bread next week. Like, don't play around with it. Call it to the table. Now, do you have the authority of Asa and the kings? Nope, you don't. You don't care. We're not supposed to wield weapons like they did. Our weapons today are the weapons of what? Prayer, a surrendered life, righteousness. We fight spiritual battles you got to remember, when they went into the promised land, do you know how many weapons they had when they went into the promised land? Zero. Literally. When they left Egypt, they didn't take a bunch of swords with them. They didn't have any chariots. They had nothing. They took a bunch of silver and gold. They got bought off to leave. But other than that, they had nothing. They literally had like shovels and like pickaxes and stuff. Like that was, yeah, like that was their battle plan. 
The first battle is they march around the city seven times, and God's like, just march around the city quietly seven times, and then leave. Like, each day, seven days, march around seven times. Like, you're marching around, and they're all like, what are you, what are you doing? Just, mar- just marching around. We're good. Are you going to do anything? Nope. See you tomorrow. And then you leave and come back the next day. And like, we could just kill you. Like, we shoot you right now. Like, what are you doing? Well, we're just, this is what God told us to do. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us either. And then on the seventh day, God's like, march around and then stop and then scream really loud and I'll take care of everything. So he wants to march around and then expose our position and be like, blah! So then they're like, ah, and they just shoot us. That's not a good battle plan. As soon as they scream, the city walls of Jericho fall out in an earthquake. The people are destroyed. It's chaos. And then they burn down the city of Jericho. Burn it to the ground. No survivors. It's over. It's done. And you think, how could God do that? How could God totally eliminate man, woman, and child? Why why would he ask How long had the Israelites and all the nations around the Israelites known that there was a group of people who said this God was the God above our gods who's wandering out around in the desert with nothing? Forty years, all of these nations had the opportunity to repent. They had the opportunity to come and leave their nation to cross the border and say, hey, We're not real happy with our God. We're just wondering if maybe we can find out about Yahweh God. You know, we see that he keeps like providing bread from heaven. We've heard these stories. So we came to just see it one morning. I just want to see, wow, there's like bread from heaven. It provides all your nourishment. You don't have to, you don't have to plant a field. Like this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. Yeah, we got a guy. He like speaks to a rock and water comes out. It's amazing. Like he hits it and then we get water. Like what? That's awesome. Like no one ever went to investigate. They were just happy sitting in their idolatry and they, weren't, they didn't care about God. They didn't seek him. They, didn't, they were doing nothing but provoking God to more and more wrath. None of these nations went out to check on the people of God. Hey, we hear you're wandering in the desert. We just thought we'd come out and see how you're doing. We brought you some cattle. We just, we just wanted to care for you. Those Egyptians were really mean. We just thought we'd come and like, just talk to you. None of them did it. And so when the judgment was time, God brought judgment. If you can't accept this, then you'll never accept hell. If you can't accept this teaching, you will never accept God's teaching on heaven and hell and the fact that there is a judgment day coming when Christ comes back and he will separate the sheep and the goats and it'll be over and there's no chance to repent after that. God gave the Canaanites the opportunity to repent all the way to the last minute. He gave them seven days of marching to repent. And one woman, a prostitute, repented and became a part of the lineage of God's son being born into the world. That's incredible. That's our God. He wants to give mercy. He wants to give grace. But when you despise it, you have his judgment. And that's Jezebel. That's Ahab and Jezebel. They wouldn't do what God said to do. Deuteronomy goes on, it says, because they will turn your sons and daughters away to me to worship other gods, then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He'll be provoked and he will surely and he will swiftly destroy you. By the way, the northern kingdom was swiftly destroyed. They were destroyed in about 200 years, wiped out, gone. The southern kingdom lasted like, I think it was two, about 250 years longer than that. 
And then they were destroyed because of their wickedness. See, we don't think swiftly like God thinks swiftly. Remember, Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. How long ago was that? 2,000 years. You're like, that doesn't seem very quick to me. Like, quickly to me is like, I'm coming over. Got to clean my house real fast because they'll be here in 10 minutes. Right? Have you ever done that? Have someone called you, hey, we're going to stop by. And you're like, oh, you're frantically. And then like six hours later, they stop by. And when they're at the door, you're like, I'm always so glad you're here. You could have told me I had like six hours to clean up. You know, it would have been helpful. Changed my whole day for you. Been waiting around. Because we can't stand for God to be God and to wait and to him have authority and to live our lives faithfully, going to worship, doing the simple things, believing that another generation will do that and another, and that's just the way God's designed it, so we worship him. Because that's the way heaven's going to be. We're going to get to heaven, it's going to be real simple. It's not going to be very complicated. He goes on, he says, Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn up their carved images. Who do you think read the word of God? Asa. Asa knew God's word. He knew Deuteronomy. He's like, oh, grandma has an Asherah pole. I love grandma. Nope, got to do this. I'm a king. I've been given authority. I didn't ask for this authority. I was just born in this mess, so I, I got to do this. And then it says, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Rahab believed this. She knew God saved me. And then it says, look at this. The Lord was devoted to you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you. And kept his oath, he swore to your fathers. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh the king. That's what he does with our sin. He delivers us out. Know that Yahweh, your God, is God. The faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commands. But he directly pays back and destroys those who hate him. He will not hesitate to directly pay back to the one who hates him. So keep the command and statutes and ordinances that I'm giving you to follow today. Look at this. God says, I will give the blessings to a thousandth generation, but I won't hold the curse from the last generation over you. I'll pay you back directly for your sin. I'll pay you directly for what you've done wrong. But when you choose to follow me and do it my way and you obey me and follow my statutes and commands and lean into a relationship with me and surrender to me as the only God who's worthy of your life, you can guarantee that when you do that, the things you do in my name will carry a thousand generations for as long as you can think. See, God doesn't want to pay us back for all the sins everybody else did. That's not grace. Grace is God saying, I will forgive you. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences. It doesn't mean you don't recognize the consequences. But it's not I go back and I have to fix all this because God's not happy with me. No, God loves you. And from that point on, you go after him. And if you see in the past evil, you call it out. You say, we're not going to do that. And you do it. And you can't make up for it all. You can't like go back and try to make up for it all. It's not possible. That's what grace is. Grace is a free gift. Can you imagine if God's like, I give you grace. Now go back and make up for everything. And you're like, that's not going to. Oh, and what your dad did and your grandpa and your great grand Like you got to make up for all. I, I can't. I know. That's why I just want you to walk with me and let me take care of it. And make sure you're walking with me. 
Don't teach things I didn't teach. Don't do things I don't. Like that's exactly what he lays out. Look at what in Acts when Paul is preaching. And he's preaching to Israelites. He's at a Jewish synagogue. As he's, this is his first missionary journey. This is one of Paul's first recorded sermons. First thing he spoke. This is what he says. This God of the people Israel chose our ancestors, exalted the people during their stay in the land of Egypt, and then led them out with a mighty arm. That's what we just read in Deuteronomy. God fulfilled it. And for about 40 years, look at this, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that. <laughs> so yeah, he led them out. It was great. And then for like 40 years, he put, like, I feel like that about my salvation. Like God delivered me at 18 years old. I came to know Jesus. And for the last 30 years, he's been putting up with me. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord he's been putting up with me. Like, I'm so thankful. And then look what he says. Then after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land to them as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. 450 years. That's a long time. Yep, because that's just the way God is. He honors faithfulness. That's what he wants. So he says, let's do faithfulness. Let's just do faithfulness after faithfulness. And then I'll write a book about it. And you'll see how amazing it is to be faithful. It's amazing. And we're like, but I want it now. God's like, well, you can have it now. And you'll have to pay for it now. Or you can just trust me. It, like, this is not, this is Paul's first sermon. He's like, do you want to provoke God to like see you and like then know the book? Provoke him to the righteous things. It might take 450 years, but it's worth it. He, does, he fulfills it every time. Second Chronicles says this, while this is going on and Ahab is now doing all these things and has married Jezebel and it's getting more and more wicked, he won't let people cross over. Look what happens in the southern kingdom. This is what God does. When evil rises, God is so amazing to say, I'm going to pour out my spirit at the same time. It's amazing how God does this. Asa's son Jehoshaphat became king in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He didn't battle Israel. He just said, you know what? I'm not giving any more ground. I can't kill you. God has told me I can't come after you. He's dealing with you. But I'm not giving you any more ground. No more. I'm not making any treaties with you. No. Done. And then it says... He stationed troops in every fortified city of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. That's border country. And then it says, he walked. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. In other words, he didn't just walk in the ways of Asa. He went back and found out how David walked, read David's Psalms, figured out what David wrote because God, and he said, I want to do even more righteousness than my father Asa. And the way to do that is to know what David wrote, to know what the Bible says. And then he says, he did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked by his commands, not according to the practices of Israel, which would have been easy to do to get in good with your neighbors. Nope. So the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. Then all Judah brought him tribute, and he had riches and honor and abundance. His mind rejoiced. Look at this. His mind rejoiced in the Lord's ways. He, didn't, he wasn't rejoicing in all the stuff. He was so consumed mentally by the beauty and glory and wonder of God. And he again removed the high places and Asherah poles from Judah. He went after him again. He's like, I'm going after the rural area. My dad took care of him in the cities. I'm going after him everywhere. We're not doing this. 
It goes on, it says, in the third year of his reign, Jehoshaphat sent officials, Ben-Hale, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathaniel, and Micaiah. By the way, that's where we get our daughter's name, Micaiah. To teach in the cities of Judah, the Levites with whom were Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Ashel, Simorah, Samara, Moth, Jehonathan, I practice these, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah, the priest. Elishama and Jer- Jehoram were with these Levites. They taught throughout Judah, having the book of the Lord's instruction with them. Look at that, folks. Underline it in your Bible, circle it. And then he says, the terror of the Lord. Oh, sorry, they went throughout the towns of Judah and taught the people. The terror of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the land that surrounded Judah, so they did not fight against Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat grew stronger and stronger. Why did they not fight against the Lord? Why did Jehoshaphat grow stronger and stronger? Because for the first time since David, the people knew God's word. It wasn't about building like all this army and power. It was like, I got to employ people and send them out to teach the word of God, period. Because if we don't know that, it doesn't matter how many chariots or horses we had, like my father Solomon, his kingdom split and it went everywhere. That doesn't work. You know what my father Solomon didn't do? He didn't remember the word of God. That's what I'm going back to. This is amazing. Asa didn't even do this. Jehoshaphat's like, I want everybody to know God and his word. I want everybody to hear the stories. I want everyone to be able to read God's word and see what God says about kings and hold me accountable to what God says about kings. Because if I teach people God's word, then they're going to say, hey, God says you can't do this, Mr. King. God says you can't do that, Mr. King. Hey, Mr. King. It's easier just not to teach God's word so you don't have to be confronted with it. Jehoshaphat's like, nope, I need accountability. I need everybody to know the word of God because we're all under that, period. Goes on and says this. During his, Ahab's reign, Hillel, the Belethite, built Jericho at the cost of Abraham, his firstborn. He laid its foundation. At the cost of Segub, his youngest, he set up its gates. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Joshua, son of Nun. God told Joshua, son of Nun, this. At the time Joshua imposed this curse, Joshua cursed Jericho. Their first battle they won. Rahab repented, everybody else slaughtered. The man who undertakes the rebuilding of this city, Jericho, is cursed before the Lord. He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn. He will set up its gates at the cost of his youngest. This guy could have spared his children's death had he known the word of God. And his children are both killed because, wow, we're going to build back Jericho because God was mean to kill those Jericho people. He was mean to do that. And that wasn't righteous. And so we're going to build it back up to say, see, the God of Baal, he's nicer. He's more loving. He's going to rebuild this for you. Man, I don't know why my firstborn son died. He just got sick and died. That's really weird. I don't know why all those stones fell on my youngest. That's just a tragedy. Just right here in the Word. Why it happened. Don't rebuild this city. It's supposed to be, it's the first city. It's supposed to be an example. As you're traveling north, Jericho be like, oh yeah, that's what happens when you stand up to God. Don't do that. Don't stand up to God. Be like Rahab. Surrender. Don't try to fight back. At best, just flee for your life from God. Like, run to another land and just give it to him. Here, you can have the land. I'm out of here. Like, that's an option. Don't fight him. 
And aren't we the same way? We know what God's word says, but we do the complete opposite. I mean, look at this map. This map's perfect. It tells you the whole. There's Bethel, there's Ai, and there's Jericho, and there's Jerusalem. Look at that. Bethel and Jericho are 10 miles apart. That's like a, from Ellettsville to the southern, like, to, to, to the mall. Like, just past the mall. That's how close they are. Like, you could walk there in, like, minutes, an hour. You just walk there. I guess it would be an hour and a half, two hours. Like, to walk. I'm a fast walker. And so, like, that's... And look at the border. There's Jericho, and now they're rebuilding it, and, like, it's going back. This is what we do. We literally will build stuff in front of people in their face and be like, ha, take that. You don't think you do that? Yeah, you do. You do it in your own house. You do it in your own house. Right? Be like, oh, you don't think I can do that? Watch this. Oh, that's not what you want for supper? Watch this. I'll just make this for supper. You can make your own supper. Boom, line, boom, ching. Like, there's the fridge. There's supper. There's a wall of separation. There's a distance. Our hearts are just like this. And God's like, I don't want this. I want you surrendered to me. 500 years earlier, Joshua wrote those words, and 500 years later, they forgot him, and two young boys died. Because they just didn't read God's word. And they didn't have as much to read as we did. (laughs) They didn't have nearly as much to read because there was no New Testament. And the prophets hadn't spoken yet. Most of the prophets hadn't spoken. It, Isaiah hadn't been written. Jeremiah, those are the longest books. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, I stand before him, and there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Then a revelation from the Lord came to him. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide yourself at the Wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. You are to drink from the wadi. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he did what the Lord commanded. Elijah left and lived by the wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he drank from the wadi. After a while, the wadi was dried up because there had been no rain in the land. God calls Elijah to go confront Ahab and be like, dude, because you're unrighteousness, there's going to be a drought. There's no water. Water was everything in this time period, just like it is today. By the way, if you live in Ellisville, your water bill is going up by 33%, so you'll get to pay for how valuable water is in, when your bill comes out soon. Just letting you know. Okay, so I'm not saying they shouldn't raise it. I'm just saying it's happening. And so here is this water that's here. Elijah goes and said there's going to be a drought, and then God says, great, I want you to go to Zarephath. On the map, Zarephath, it's as far north as you can go. He travels like, I mean, 100 miles. He has to walk and go. Like, it's so far away. God's like, you drop a message, and you're like, see ya, and then you get out. The reason he had to do that is because Jezebel would have killed him. You'll see that next week. Jezebel would have killed him had he not done it. Because she could not stand and Ahab could not stand to have their authority stood up against. And so he had to flee. And God so graciously said, don't worry. I'm going to let the buzzards bring the roadkill off the side of the road to you. It's going to be great. They're going to fly over. They're going to grab a possum and they're going to just drop it. And you're going to be like, oh, look, roadkill. This is wonderful. It's going to be great. I'll protect you. You won't die. You can cook it. It's going to be awesome. And I'll give you water. And then they'll also find some breadcrumbs too. So they'll like fly into Samaria and some guy threw out a bunch of bread. They'll pick that up, right? Right right out of the dumpster. And they'll bring it to you, Elijah. 
You ready to go to Zarephath? This would be fun. None of us would do this. We'd be like, nah, I'll just stay here and be killed. That's all right. I don't think I want birds and wadis and uh, just no, I'm good. Elijah's like, well, if that's what you want, Lord, then that's what I'll do. It says, the word of the Lord came to him. Get up, go to Zarephath that belongs to the Sidian and stay there. Look, I have commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. When he arrived at the city gate, there was a wood, widow woman gathering wood. Elijah called her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup and let me drink. He probably hadn't drank. It was a drought. He had probably traveled most of the way without any water. Maybe every once in a while a raven stopped by and spit some water in his mouth. I don't know. Because the wadi's not there. And it says, bring me a little water in a cup and let me drink. And she went to get it. Wow, what a woman. Some stranger walks up. And, and it's like, could you possibly give me a drink? She's like, okay, look at this. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked. Only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now I'm gathering a couple of sticks in order to go prepare myself for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. We have so little and we're so hungry. I've got water, but this is our last meal. This is the last meal we have. It's interesting, I remember a story about a guy eating a last meal with his disciples with bread and wine and water, and I remember him doing that with them and saying, as much as you do this in remembrance of me, just remember I'll keep providing for you that my body and my blood will always be your provision forever and ever and ever. And he says... Then Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. I love God always responds like this to people who are humble and surrendered to him. God always, when you look at scripture all the time, God's like, okay, you got the right heart. Don't be afraid because you have a fearful heart. You don't have a prideful heart. You don't have an arrogant heart. You, don't be afraid. And then he says, go and do as you have said. But first, make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. I just told you we don't have bread and you want a small loaf. What a jerk. I'm a widow. I have no husband. In Israel, you're supposed to take care of the widows. It's a part of the law in the Old Testament. And here's this prophet showing up being like, give me a small loaf. Like, no, I'm not giving you a small loaf. Like, that would be my response, not this widow. This widow recognizes Elijah and says, you know what? If, I'm gonna die, if we're all going to die, then I might as well just serve God as we're going out. I might as well help you as we're all going to we're all going down. And then it says, look at this. Afterward, you may make some for yourself and your son. Oh, you may make some. Well, that's what I was going to do. I don't need your permission. And then it says, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says, the flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not turn dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. Just remember the bread always represents the flesh that God provides, the manna, the flesh God provides, and the oil always represents the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. Jesus and the Holy Spirit coming together, making a bread dough that gives us the ability to last another day. And then he says, look at this. So she proceeded to do, oh, sorry, it says, until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do this according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. 
The flour jar did not become empty and the oil jug did not run dry according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through Elijah. By the way, this is a miracle. Don't tell people this is gonna happen to them. They may just have a foot problem and die with it, okay? But God can do this. And we better be able to believe in the miracles that he can do. And if he doesn't do them, then we trust him with that too. God can do miraculous things. Don't doubt it. But don't demand it. Just be obedient and let God take it. Because that's what this woman did. After this, the man, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His illness became severe until no breath remained in him. She said to Elijah, man of God, what do we have in common? You have come to remind me of my guilt and to kill my son. God is taking my son. I must have done something wrong. I thought things were going really well. I had bread. I had the wine. I had the Holy Spirit. I had Jesus. Things like things are going. It's not going too well. What's going on? But Elijah said to her, give me your son. She took him from her arms. Oh, the picture of that. Like, oh. Brought him up to the upper room where she was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, My God, you have also brought tragedy to this widow I'm staying with by killing her son. Then he stretched himself out over the boy three times. He cried out to the Lord and said, My Lord God, please let this boy's life return to him. Please. By the way, Elijah was making himself unclean by doing this. Because if you touched a dead body, you would be unclean and have to purify yourself. And there's no water for the purification because it's a drought. Elijah's like, I don't care. I don't care. Goes on and it says, so the Lord listened to Elijah's voice and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, look, your son's alive. <laughs> Then the widow said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and the Lord's word is from your mouth is true. She doubted all the provision. She doubted all that God had provided in the water and the oil, this prophet showing up. She still doubted. But when she saw a resurrection, the doubt was gone. Sounds like something the New Testament says. God can provide for you all you want, but it's the resurrection that says he is God and has power over death because we're all dying even if we get to eat for a while, if we got a foot disease or whatever happens. So do you want to provoke God to these kinds of things so that he does his work or do you want to provoke God in his wrath? When Jesus was ministering John 4, it said he had to travel through Samaria. That's the capital of and the Samaritans and Jews hated each other in Jesus' day. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. There's a border. We don't associate. Look at what it says. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying it to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Forever water. Go call your husband, he told her. And come back here. I don't have a husband, she said. He confronts her sin dead on. It's what God does. And then it says, Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. There will be no separation. He's trying to get her to see who he is. Look at what it says. She says, you Samaritans worship, or he says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know because you don't read the word of God. That started all the way back at Ahab. 
And then it says, we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, so there's division, but the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus says, I am he. In other words, Yahweh is right here. The word I am is Yahweh. Yahweh just showed up to ask you for water, just like Elijah showed up to ask the widow for a drink. What will be your response? God has not changed his message. Thousands of years, it's the same. You want a drink, you want sustaining, you want all these things, then surrender to me. Don't provoke me. I'm God. But you can provoke me to great things, to see things that you could not believe. You can read my word and see how people have provoked me to righteous things. And you can believe me that someday what you do will provoke generations and the future to worship and serve me. Really quickly, we're going to run through a few things. John 14 says the spirit is the spirit of truth. The, word is unable, the world is unable to receive the Spirit because it doesn't see Him or know Him, but you do know Him because He remains with you and will be with you. Be in you, sorry. The Holy Spirit, that's the oil. We've got the bread who is Jesus. He is the bread of life who's come from heaven. Jesus says the Holy Spirit's coming. We just celebrated last week Shabbat, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. John says, when the counselor, Jesus says, when the counselor comes, the one I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. The Holy Spirit doesn't glorify the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always glorifies Jesus. That is a false teaching. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to itself. It always says, look at Jesus. Look at the Word. Look at the bread. Look at him. I'm just oil. I get squeezed and pressed out. He's the real stuff goes on, it says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. Ephesians says, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We don't have to have a second filling. The second you receive salvation and ask Jesus to come in, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and it seals you up so that you can receive God's message and blessings from that point forward. I didn't say it. Paul did in Ephesians. 1 John 4, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That woman wasn't sure if Elijah was who he said he was. When he raised her dead son, he was like, well, that's different. Galatians says, I want you, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you going to now be made complete by the flesh? Follow the Spirit. It's not about doing all the right things. It's just about staying close to God and the power of His life. If you do that, you'll do the right things. That's Jehoshaphat and Asa. They weren't trying to do all the right things. They were just like, I just want to be close to God. I want God's people to be close to God. I want people to know God. I want to know His Word. That's what I want. Verse Kings goes on. It says, After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called for Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord and took 100 prophets and hid them. 
50 men to a cave and provided them with food and water, bread and water. There it is again. When Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. Ahab said to Obadiah, go throughout all the land of every spring of water and every wadi. Perhaps we'll find grass so we can keep the horses and mules alive and not have to destroy any cattle. It's that bad. And they still won't repent. They're still provoking God. They won't cry out to God to to provoke him for blessing because they're right. And I'm going to stand on this. Galatians says, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. God's desire was to bring the message to the Gentile nations of their need to surrender to him, the God of the universe. It wasn't to kill them, it was to say, repent. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit causes us to recognize God isn't far off, he is in our sights. He is our Father. He is our Abba Father. He is close, and He wants to have a relationship with us. It's just, we kind of have to email and text Him and call Him on the phone a lot. We can't be with Him. Yet. Galatians 5 says this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We know it's a mess. It's a mess in the northern kingdom. It's a mess in the southern kingdom. But the people that were spared were those who were waiting for God to show up. And they responded when he did. And then it says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not worried about, did I do the right thing? You're just like, I just want to be with Jesus. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. And then he goes on to say, you can provoke God. You can do these things as much as you want because there is no law. You can do as much love as you want. You can have, oh, it's of, sorry. Love, joy. You can do as much peace as you want, as much patience, as much kindness, as much goodness. You can do as much as you want of that stuff according to what God says is loving, according to what God says is patient. Because God's patience is like 200 years, 452,000 years long. Not like your patience. You can do as much of this stuff as you want if you're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and you will provoke God's Spirit to become more and more alive in you, more and more alive in others, and it will change our world. That's what God says. That's his plan. It's been his plan since all the way back at Elijah. Next week, we're going to look at a showdown between Elijah and Jezebel and Ahab. And we're going to look at Elijah's response, which is a lot like your response if we're honest. This week, I want you to ask the question, am I provoking God to wrath or am I provoking him to love and righteousness? And I want to tell you, if you know Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God will use the Holy Spirit and use that relationship to provoke you to love and good deeds. And he'll use the church to do that. And our response is to say, I just want God, Abba, Father, come. You are good. Let's stand and pray. Go ahead and stand. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be in this place, to be in air conditioning when it's hot. Lord, the people of God that we just read about were having a drought, heat that was, was no rain. And yet you sustain those who were faithful. Lord, there may be some here that are going through some heat right now. It's tough. There's a drought. Maybe it's because of their own doing. Maybe it's because they just live in a place that's dry. 
Lord, I pray that you would show them that you are the provider. And Lord, for those who don't know you this morning, I pray that they would surrender finally to you. They wouldn't just look for your provision, but they would, like the widow, recognize that you came back from the dead. And if you have power over life, then there's nothing I have to fear. It doesn't matter if my jar stays full or empty because I'm going to live forever. Lord, that's the kind of faith you're looking for. Not one that wants to make the world the way we want to make it, but one that shows people that there is a world coming that we can't make and only you can. And so, Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray they would just surrender. They'd say, Jesus, you are who you say you are. You are the Yahweh of the Old Testament. You are the word. You are the bread of life. You are the living water. And I invite you to come in and change me. Bring your Holy Spirit to do its work that I can't do. And for those of us who know you, I pray we would just say, Lord, provoke us. Provoke us for whatever that next step is that we need. We pray in your name. Amen.